You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. my church and I hope that you do too. Amen. I want to talk to you if I can. And uh, by the Lord's help, we're going to finish this series. We're going to wrap it up. And we are looking tonight at the title, Money and People, Issues for Life. And are those ever issues? Amen. Turn to somebody and say, you got issues. You got issues. We all have issues, and these are two issues that we always deal with in our life. We're going to deal with it in some capacity, in some form, or some measure. And I want to look, if we can, by the help of the Lord, grace of God, to His Word, and try to give you some encouragement, admonishment as pastor. And as we do that, I wonder right now, just as we begin, while you're seated, would you lift your voice with me right now? Let's just ask God's Spirit to be with us. Can you pray with with me tonight. Lord, in Jesus' name, I thank you, God, for your mercy, and I thank you for your grace. I thank you for everyone that has made it out to the house of God. I thank you for those that are striving, and I pray tonight by your help, let the Word of God send encouragement and send strength into our life. It's to you that we look. And everyone said tonight, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Clap your hands unto the Lord one more time. Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. So let me ask this question. Why are we talking about money and people? I began last week by letting us know that perhaps two of the biggest issues outside of your life will, everything will funnel down to these two issues outside of the primary issue of your salvation, your eternal destination. There's nothing that trumps that. That is absolute. Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you saved? Are you ready to meet the Lord? That is always number one in your life at every point in your existence, no matter where you're at or what you're going through. But beyond that, two of the biggest areas, regions for difficulty setback, uh, uh, stumbling, entrapment, whatever you want to call it, are going to be the issues of both money and people. And the reason why we're talking about this is because these two issues were highlighted. They were they they had uh, they they were brought to the surface among the church body in the New Testament. So this is not something that's new to our day and age. It's not something new to our time. But these are issues that have been plaguing man or perplexing man for thousands of years, for millennia. And these were two things that rose to the surface among the New Testament church. Now, if you've ever ever been in a church and you've thought, man, the church is a mess, there is an encouraging fact when you read through the New Testament and realize that at least I'm not in the mess alone, that it seems like churches have always been in a mess. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. So I don't think we're ever going to get to the day where 
churches aren't a mess in a certain context. That doesn't mean that, that we don't have responsibilities and God does not have expectations of us. But we're dealing with fallen humanity. We're dealing with broken people. And we are in, amen, the gospel business. We are in, as some people said, the soul-saving business. If you went to a hospital and there was no one sick that was present, then the hospital would not be achieving its job. So the same is true of the church. Can I get a witness? If you show up to the church and there aren't people who are in the midst of a mess, who are broken, who have fallen, who have stumbled, then the church really isn't doing its job. Such was the case in the New Testament that Paul felt the need to, there was the need for them to sort of draw some lines or to establish, if you will, some markers, some, some limits, some parameters and some guidelines over leadership in the church. Yes, there are people who are a mess that are in the church. They're a part of the body of Christ. God loves them, but maybe not everyone is qualified at this moment, at this very time to be set up to lead the church, to be leadership in the church. You do so, and of course, Scripture warns that you could not only harm the church, but you could also harm that individual who needs yet time for healing and time for strength. So we go to the New Testament, and we see the requirements for leadership involve two things. Not only do they have to be saved, that's obvious, and have the faith and truth, but Two things stand out, and that is that they must not have mishandled in a long-term uh, devastating way relationships and money. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, it's the first time we see in the narrative account that Luke writes where the need arises for help among the apostles. And they say this, wherefore, brethren, look out among you seven men of honest Report full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom who may, who we may appoint over this business. The apostles were saying we're spending too much time with the logistics and we need to be given to prayer. We need to be given to the word. We need to be given to ministry. And so there was this call for leadership. Look at what it says here. Luke is just writing a summary here, but even he highlights these men must be of honest Report. Everybody say report. Report. There's got to be a reputation that is established. They must be full of the Holy Ghost. They've got to be saved. They've, they've not just got to be saved. They've got to allow the Lord to be leading in their life. They have to be full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom and wisdom. But somewhere along the line, there was a need for Paul to be specific, for there to be clarification. What does it mean to be of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom? 
And so Paul would spell this out. Three different places there would be a clarity that was given. These three places are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to go there right now. Also, you could find in, in Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Plus, you have the entire reference of the Old Testament, and you can go back and you can look at what God put qualifications upon his, his priest, not only his priest, but upon his children, not only them, but upon his prophets as well. So let's go, if we will, to 1 Timothy chapter number 3, and look at what Paul says here in the King James Version I'm reading here to, to you. It says, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. Blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to preach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetousness, one that ruleth well his own house." having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? This is common sense. If someone, now, now Paul is not, what he is doing here, uh, make no mistake, what he is doing here is a very interesting thing because Paul is drawing lines in the sand in the church. Now, his intention to draw this line is not to disenfranchise anyone. In fact, the church, it was a mess. You go back and read Corinthians, and you think, my goodness, I don't know that I know of a church that was as bad as the church at Corinth. And yet, Paul still called them all saints. He called them a part of the family of God. But in this instance, Paul is drawing a line in the sand. Anytime you draw a line or you draw... You set a rule or a guideline, immediately there's going to be a disenfranchise. There's going to be a disqualification. But look at what Paul says here. He said, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? You don't just want to set anybody up to lead the church. Does God love everyone? Absolutely. Does God give his spirit freely to everyone? Absolutely. But that does not mean that that person is ready for leadership in the church. So Paul is saying that there is a an object. There is a target. There is a goal that we are trying to reach, that we are trying to attain, that we are striving toward. And he says, if a man does not know how, now he does not condemn them. He doesn't say, he doesn't call them bad names. He doesn't say, well, they're just useful for nothing. He says, if a man does not know how to rule his house, how can he care for the things of God? And here's the reality of where we can find ourselves in the church. We can find ourselves loved of God and we love God and we receive his salvation. We receive his grace and mercy. We come to an altar. We repent of our sins. We're baptized in Jesus' name. We're filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Wow. God's given us victory over sin, but there can still be areas of our life where we don't know how to proceed. Man, it's really quiet on Wednesday night. Wow. <laughs> it is possible for you to be saved and still not know how to do everything in life. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Right. Right. 
Not only is it possible for you, but it is possible that the person next to you still has some things to figure out. Yeah. Now, for those that were raised in church all your life, well, it was just a matter of finally submitting and surrendering your heart to God as a child. I was raised on a pew. I know what it's like to have a songbook for a pillow and dad's suit coat for a jacket while I sleep through Sunday nights and, and that I didn't get naps and all the, that kind of stuff. I know what that's like. And so you learn things innately. And so when I gave my life over to God, I knew how to act. I knew what I was supposed to do. I had a, a godly home. I, I had models. It was just sort of second nature. But here he's dealing with a Gentile culture that comes out of a pagan concept that is very idolatrous, that is very immoral. They, they, they did not all have the benefit of the context of an Old Testament principle. And so now God loves them. They're living for God, but they're still Roman in culture. Does God not love them? Absolutely, He loves them. Are they not saved? Absolutely, they're saved. But there are things in their life that they are still learning and trying to figure out. And Paul's saying, look, we, we have, there are some things you need to know. There are, why? Because the enemy is going to come against you. He's going to attack you. And if you can't take care of yourself, how much are we helping you by saddling the responsibility of you taking care of someone else when you're still trying to figure the things out on your own. Somebody say, praise the Lord. So there are things that they did not know. Not a novice. Here it is, lest he being lifted up with pride, he fall in the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and a snare of the devil. And now he goes on. Now, notice how many times he talked about money and he talked about relationships. In fact, he talks about relationships more than anything else. If you're going to be qualified in the church, your relationships have to be right. You got to be blameless. A husband of one wife, you got to be faithful to your wife. You, you, you got to have good behavior. You, you need to be able to host people. You need to have good hospitality. You've got to care about actually having people, uh, uh, hosting people and being and serving other people. You, you, you've, you've got to not be violent. You've got to be faith. Uh, you've got to be patient. You can't be contentious. You've got to uh, be able to rule your own house well. You've got to be able to manage and deal with dissenting opinions and conflicts and all of those kind of things. These are things that are required for you. Having his children in subjection with all gravity, he says, moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. Not only does your reputation in the church matter, but your reputation outside of the church matters as well. Amen. Not only should your relationships in the church be right, but your relationships, hear me, should be right with people. Now, who's Paul writing to? He's writing to Timothy. Where was Timothy pastor? Pastor in Ephesus. What, what is Ephesus? Ephesus is the place where they worship the goddess Diana. It was pagan. It was, it, there was nothing godly about it. And yet Paul says, your reputation with the godless needs to be good. 
with those that don't believe like you, that don't live like you, with those that are vile, those that are wicked, those that are immoral, your relationships. Am I in the book here, folks? I'm not making this stuff up. And so God says, hey, this is a requirement. Now, why are you talking about this? Well, he goes on and he talks about the service of deacons. Deacons were those who may not have been the preachers and the pastors per se, but they were were the lay leadership of the church, seeing to the business needs of the church. They were not without. Hey, you don't even want to give the responsibility of, of, of church treasury and other things to somebody who does not have some things in order. Look at what it says about the deacons. They must likewise be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also be proved, first be proved, and let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. So there's requirements for them. Not only them, even so their wives must be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, faithfulness in their marriages, in their relationship, ruling their children in their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Amen. I I won't take the time to read it through in the New Living Translation, but if you go back and read this passage in the New Living Translation, it spells it out in such a modern, clear term. You've got to love people, and you've got to have your relationships right. Now, anybody that's been married for any length of time knows that you've got to be willing to have give and take. There's got to be some forgiveness and long-suffering and mercy, and there's also got has to be the ability to identify when you're wrong, to take responsibility for your wrongdoings. Anytime you have a family, you have a relationship, you've got to work these things out. And Paul is saying this is required for leadership in the church. Which means that there's going to be people in the church who don't have the money issue and the people issue all figured out yet. So let me encourage somebody, whether you're in the room or you're online or you're watching this later, this is not a condemnation sermon because you could have failed financially and you could have failed relationally. But I'm here to tell you that God's grace is sufficient. And not only is His grace sufficient, His mercy is everlasting. And God is a redeemer, and He's a restorer. Amen. And He will make of us new creatures. That's why there's power when we say, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. And I love how the KJV translates it. And all things become new. It doesn't say became new. It doesn't say will become new. It says become in the present tense. It's new. I'm here to tell you his mercies are new every morning. And just because you've been living for God a while and you haven't got it all figured out, God is still doing a work and you are becoming new every day. We ought to put our hands together and thank God. Amen for his blessing in our life. So So, not only are we, amen, thankful for grace and mercy, but I'm thankful for grace and mercy when I see it in other people's life. God wants to do a work in your life. 
And if you don't win the battle, you've got to win the battle at some point, because if you don't get the battle won over relationships and money, you can get more money and you're going to have the same problems. You can get new friends, new family, new spouse, and you're going to have the same problems. So you've got to learn to win with this right now. So tonight, last week, we talked about the money, and I just wanted to uh, uh, revisit that reason why we're talking about that, because I jumped right into it. This week, we're going to talk about the people, money and people, issues for life. You will always have these issues. So my question is this, do you succeed in relationships. Or let me ask this, what relationship have you failed in? What relationship didn't work out? What friendship fell by the wayside? What relationship? Because I don't believe that there really is any true, truly honest person that wouldn't sit in this room and say, wow, I wish I could go back. I would have changed things. I would have been a better friend, a better Son, a better daughter, a better spouse, a better father, a better mother. Somewhere along the line, there's some point in our life. Mark 12 and 31, they were asking Jesus, what's the greatest things that we need to do? And he, of course, said the number one great commandment is love God. The second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other commandment greater than these, which lets me know that Christ commands something that we don't always feel like doing. Because love is not a feeling. It is not just an emotion. It is an action. And because Christ commanded it, or the fact that he commanded it, meant that he knew that we would be able to do it. It doesn't mean it's always going to be comfortable, always going to be fun, but we have the capacity. Every single one of us, no matter how hurt we've been, no matter what's happened, we have the capacity through the power of the Holy Ghost, amen, to be someone that wins in relationships, at least from our point of you. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 17. Proverbs 17, 17. In the King James Version first says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. If we read that in the Old English, we can make the mistake to say that, wow, a friend sticks with you all the times, and sometimes a sibling is just going to be a pain in the neck. But that's not actually what that is saying. What it is saying is a friend loveth, a true friend will love at all times, but there is a connection that you can get in this life that will take you through the deepest parts, the deepest parts of trials. In the New Living Translation, it says it this way, and we would understand what its intent is. A friend is always loyal, and a brother is born to help in the time of need. That There are moments when you come to adversity. Now, I know we think of it, in, we read Scripture through the context of our modern Western uh, air and civilization and eyes, but 
If you go back through the annals of time, mostly what you had was you had family. Everything was wrapped up in family. Your greatest resource, even today, on other sides of the world and other nations and countries, their greatest resource is family. I've met certain uh, immigrants that's come from Asia, and they come over to America, and, and their purpose and their plan is to set up every family member in a different life line of business. And so they'll have a family member that's a doctor and, and this nephew or niece or, or, or daughter or cousin or uncle, they're, they're going to be, uh, you got, you, you've got a, a dentist and you've got an auto mechanic and you've got a plumber and you've got a lawyer and you've got this. And that's how they think because in their mind, their greatest resource in navigating a new place is family. And so we've got to have somebody all over a brother is born for time to help in the time of need, that there is something that connects you, that even when, okay, I know them and I know their failure, well, they're still my brother. They're still my sister. And so I've got a responsibility to help them out to love them. Can I tell you, there is something powerful about relationships. And if we are anything in this world, we are always spoken about as being a part of the body of Christ. We are sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And a brother is born for adversity. A brother is born to help in the time of need. I stand here today as a testimony that I am here and here alone because of the church, because of people, whether family by blood or not. Amen. We were born into the body of Christ. People that loved me, people that supported me, people that corrected me, people that admonished me, people that provided for me for me. Amen. And I am thankful for the fellowship of the family of the body of Christ. Somebody clap your hands unto the Lord tonight. Amen. Everything, everything you have, this is me now proposing something. I want to propose this thought to you. And that is this, that everything you have, everything you have is ultimately measured in relationships. Everything you have is measured in relationships. Think about it this way. There is no life outside of the context of relationships. What good is it if you exist on this earth to have no friends, to know no one, to have no one know your name, to have no one know who you are, no one to be able to know what you do. Think about it in this way. Think about an adventure. I I, I like adventure. I, I like going on hiking. I like experiencing things. But think about it this. What is all of that when there is no one to share it with? What, what good is it? How, how, does it matter how big the fish was if you can't take a picture of it? Does it matter how big the fish was that you caught if you can't? Sister Harris, I, I heard, I think you like to fish. Don't you like to fish? Something like that. Is that true? Like fishing, yes. You like fishing. Yes. She said that calmly, which means you probably love fishing. I don't know. 
But what good is it if you can't take a picture of that fish and you can't show somebody to appreciate what that was? What is life outside of the context of relationship? Think about this. Think about your achievements, the things that you've accomplished in your life, the successes that you've had. What if there was no one to benefit from the accomplishments that you made in your life? What if there was no one that you could benefit your expertise that you could help? Think about it even in terms of vanity. Think about it in this terms of vanity. What good is social media if you're the only one on social media? I created social media. It's me. I get on there and I like what I post on my, I comment on what I, no, all of that, even in vain. What good is it if there's no one to come along and, 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 and appreciate, accomplish, even in your vanity, there's no one to admire you. If there's no one to be awed by you, what good is it outside of the context of relationship relationships ultimately are the measure of your life? And I'm going to tell you, here's the beautiful thing about that. And that's this, that I don't have to have the vanity of all kinds of people that don't really know me uh, uh, contributing to my value. I don't have to have massive accomplishments that contribute to the world. I can just have relationships with people that know my name, that I can benefit. And I am only as rich as my relationships. You are only as rich as your relationships, and you are as poor as your relationships. You're rich or poor, not by the size of your bank account, but by the relationships that you have in this world. If anything, Jesus Christ taught us that as he was going throughout this life. I will tell you this, and look at this. This is what Paul brought up. Now, Paul, who is not married... We do not know if he had any children. We do not believe he had any children. We do not know. Some have argued that Paul perhaps could have been either a widower or he could have been a divorcee because he talks in the context of marriage as if he has been marriage, understanding marriage, when he gives admonishment about marriage. We don't know that, though. The Scripture does not speak to that necessarily. But notice that some of Paul's biggest gauges for success in relationship come and will show up first in the home. Your biggest gauge of success will be in your family as a child to your parents and to your grandparents. You've got to have good relationships. As a child, you've got to learn to interact with those that love you, those that provide for you, those that take care of you. You've got to learn to interact with those that are older than you, that know more than you, that understand. You've got to learn to uh, uh, deal with not only obedience and submission as a child, you've also have to learn to deal with their inconsistencies, their shortcomings, and their failures in a family. You've got to learn your success is, as, you, as you live this life is not only relationship as a child to parents and grandparents, but it's in relationship as a sibling, as siblings to brother and sisters. You've got to work out those things. You've got to work out those kind of spats. My sister just sent me a text today of an old photograph she found. She was probably 18 years old, which would have made me probably somewhere around 21. And there we are standing in the house 
And this was not something that happened every day, but she's standing there hugging me and she has her arms around me and I have my arm around her. And, and we, we, we captured that shot. And she pulled that up and she was sharing that with our family and we were reminiscing and talking about that. And there were times I know when I was a child that, um, you know, just if we're being honest, don't, don't read too much into this, but as siblings, you want to kill one another. Amen. Come on. Somebody say, praise the Lord. All right. Thank you. And, uh, you know, you just want to do that, but you learn to get over those things. No one can hurt you more than those that are closest to you. You don't get offended, you know? You get bent out of shape. Come on, as children, we lose our mind when our sibling does something to offend us, even when they take some foolish little toy that we don't like and they throw it out in the street or whatever it is. It's the fact that they were did not have respect for us or care for us. we got to learn to navigate all those things, not only in family as a child, not only among siblings and cousins and aunts and uncles as nieces and nephews, but also so then we get promoted in our marriage, in our family. We've got to learn to navigate marriage. Paul says he's got to be the husband of one wife. He's got to be faithful to his spouse. If you really want to have authority in the church and have wisdom to lead in the church, you've got, you have to have been faithful at home. If you cannot be faithful with the most intimate things of your life, how in the world are you going to be faithful with the things that you see, the failures, the sins, the heartbreaks, the stuff that other people have in their life? You've got to win that at some point. That doesn't mean that you could have failed there and you're, you're limited for, for any kind of, of, of ministry in the church. No, but Christ has to become your healer. Yeah. Amen. Because just a new spouse doesn't fix the situation. Because I'm preaching tonight. <laughs> Amen. You've, you have to learn to deal with the conflicts. You have to learn to deal with your own pride. You have to learn to deal with your selfishness and selflessness. You have to learn to do things when you don't feel like doing that. That's, that is an important thing. And if you don't get it right in the home, you won't, you will not get it right outside of the home. Not only then as spouses and, and as husband and as wife, but then when you become the parent to your children. Now, the challenge sets in because now you've got to give and you've got to love. You've got to love with no guarantee that they will love you back. And you have to operate as the delegated authority of God to rear them in the fear of the Lord, knowing that they have their own mind and their own heart. And when you just desire to hold them and to have that closeness that you had when they were young, you are forced to make hard decisions when they grow up. When they're young, you are their best friend. When they are young, they want to marry you. They want to live forever with you. But when they grow older, all of a sudden you become enemy number one. And now you've got to love them. You've got to love them through those stages. And Paul says that if you can't do this, then maybe you just need to take focus on your own life. Love God. Serve in the church. You're a part of the body. But maybe, maybe you need to 
be able to, what does he say, rule his own house before you try to rule someone else's. The money issue and the people issue. We have to learn to deal with conflicts. Opinions are as popular as noses. Isn't that the truth? We have to learn to deal with conflicts. I promise you this. You will have money trouble and you will have people trouble. And you will have conflicts. Well, how do you deal with the conflicts? Well, you understand that conflicts have to be dealt with. They cannot be ignored. They cannot be dismissed. They cannot just be pretend like they don't exist. You have to deal with the conflicts. I was reading today and just in personal study was going back to some of the narratives of the life of King David. And you know, David, wow, in some ways we admire him so much. He writes so much of the Psalms and uh, uh, the book of Psalms. Wow, it's just incredible. And the, the, the revelation he had, I mean, David killed Goliath with a, a, a sling and a stone. And I mean, just go back at that moment. Imagine what happened, like just so incredible. And yet David's home life is wrecked with inconsistencies. You want to talk about dysfunction of dysfunction, dysfunction of dysfunction. David had so many issues, and if there's anything that ought to give you grace, because the eulogy that the apostle would say over David's life was that he was a man after God's own heart. He, of course, would not be faithful to his wife. He would be uh, complicit in murder and adultery. He would be quick to judge someone else. And the prophet said, you, sir, are that man. After David said, that man will repay fourfold. Nathan, the prophet said, yes, sir, but you, sir, are that man. He would see his son abuse, molest, rape his own daughter. And the Bible says he said nothing about it. You want to talk about a dysfunction, David? This is not how you deal with conflicts. And because of that, his other son rose up. And killed that son. Four deaths would occur in his own house. Dysfunction after dysfunction. Because David would not deal with certain conflicts in his life. I would reference you back to a study that we gave just a few weeks ago. A previous midweek study titled Isolation, the Device of Satan. And I talked about... The way that Satan isolates us is he does so through damaged relationships. He does so through hurting us. And, and, And Paul writes and says, as a roaring lion... He seeks whom he may devour. I believe it was you, Brother Ryan, gave a Bible study, and you referenced the fact that it is the strategy of a lion, I think it was you, that isolates 
the weak. And when it's isolated, then it will pounce on you. I'm going to tell you, the devil will use damaging relationships, wounds and hurts to isolate you. That's why as the body of Christ, it is so important that when we come in, we come in with a face in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, rather, Paul said, greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, I'm not advocating that. It was not a kiss in our modern context of what we're saying. And I know we're in a pandemic. Praise God, glory, hallelujah. Don't try it on me. But there was something that he was saying, and that was don't just be here, but make sure you greet one another, interact with one another. Let there be an acknowledgement. It's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. I love you. I'm praying for you. You made it. We're here together. I'm going to tell you why it's so important in the church to constantly go around to one another and say, praise the Lord. God bless you. Good to see you. I'm glad you're here because you've got to encourage one another. Why? Because we understand that the enemy will try to isolate us. Don't be offended when somebody says, hey, I miss seeing you. That doesn't mean they're condemning you. They're letting you know, hey, you matter. And we want you to be a part of the church of the body of Christ. The devil will isolate you with those things. Relationships matter in the body of Christ. From this study, I want to give a quick highlight before I close here. And that is this, that I highlighted in that study, isolation, the device of Satan, that Leviticus, the book of Leviticus was so strong on healthy relationships, speaking specifically to parents, to the elderly, even to foreigners and those that were strangers. It was so strong and specifically read out in the New Living Translation, Leviticus 19 verses 17 and 18 says this, do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives, but confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Why did God say this? Except this would be our natural proclivity. Don't nurse hatred in your heart for your relatives. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Can I tell you this? How you feel about another person in covenant with God matters to God. Amen. How we feel about one another matters to God. God cared about how we thought, how we felt. Don't nurse the hatred. You say, well, you don't know what they did to me. That's right. Maybe I don't know. What do I do? Well, I tell you, take it to the Lord. Go to God. First, go to God in prayer. Say, God, I know this person comes to church, and I know they pray and speak in tongues, but Lord, from my perspective, and you don't tell other people, but you tell God what you think of them. Tell God what you thought they did. Tell God how bad they are. And then when you get done telling God how bad they are, you pray for them. And you pray for them with faith because you also, when you tell God how bad they are, you have to acknowledge how bad you are. How bad you've been. You can't go before the throne room of an eternal God and start telling God how bad other people are without acknowledging. Isaiah said, woe is me. 
I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah was the one that had to prophesy to backslidden Israel, these immoral, these, these dirty down, these no good. And he gets in the presence of God one moment and he forgot about how bad they were. God, woe is me. I'm undone. Pray for them. And then there's some things that God tells us to do. Don't, don't bear a grudge. This is in Leviticus. But deal with it. Confront it. And let it go. Here's what Jesus said, and you can look this up on your own. Jesus said that we are to go to those who have ought against us. Jesus also said we are to go to those that we have ought against. So whether somebody doesn't like you or you don't like somebody else in the church, he says go to them because they could have sinned against you and they may or may not know it, but confront it, deal with it, and leave it alone. Love always wins when it has the final say. The point was you dealt with it, and the point of dealing with it or confronting it was always for reconciliation. There's a statement I tell our church team leadership I've said many times, and that is this, that every problem is a people problem. Every problem is a people problem. If nobody's coming to church, we don't have a nobody coming to church problem. We've got a people problem. Because somebody's got an issue somewhere that they're not coming to church. Every problem is ultimately, when it's reduced down, it's a people problem. So we have to deal with difficulties. And I've taught this several times before, but let me again give you my three things to do in dealing with conflict. Three things for dealing with conflict. And I don't know if they have a slide for that. Did they get a slide for that? All right, there it is. Three things dealing with conflict. Number one, never assume. Never assume that you know everything. It's a problem. I was reading Job this morning, and uh, uh, a life as comes out on, I can't remember what chapter it is. I think it's chapter 22, and he starts saying, well, you probably did this, and you must have done this, and you must have done this. And he goes through his whole discourse against Job, all based upon assumption. Don't make assumptions. Whether people are going through trials in life, don't be the one that stands back and say, yeah, I saw that coming. <laughs> well, yeah, I know that. Don't, don't make those assumptions because you never know. Amen. You never know what's coming your way. Right. Amen. And then you're going to say, I didn't see that coming. That's what Job said. I didn't see this coming. I didn't do anything to deserve this. Everybody said, oh, yeah, 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 surely you did that. Yeah, they made all kinds of assumptions. Don't, don't assume. Number two, don't assume, well, go back to number one. Don't assume that they hate you. Don't assume, don't assume that maybe they misunderstood. Who knows what the issue is, but don't just assume. Number two, have empathy. Put yourself in their shoes or acknowledge that it's impossible for you to put yourself in their shoes. Because sometimes it is impossible for me to put myself in your shoes. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your mindset is. And I don't know. What I do know is I can pray for you and God can give me something. He can speak to me and I can share that with you. And that's going to help you. But I can't always know. I've got to have empathy. I put myself in somebody else's shoe. Try to understand. And then number three, show grace. Work to resolve it. Extend grace. What does it mean? What does it mean that I work to resolve it? What does it mean to deal with conflict? Well, Jesus said, go to them. Reach out. Be the first. You know what? I'll tell you what won't work. Well, I'm not going to do anything until they come to me. 
<laughs> well, nobody's going to help me preach on Wednesday night here tonight. <sighs> I'm not preaching from a point of condemnation. I'm preaching from a point of experience. I've said that. Well, bless God, I'm not doing anything until they come to me. And then you know what really makes you mad? Is when they have no clue <laughs> that you're even offended or you're upset. And here you over here, but come on, somebody. You've been nursing this grudge the whole time. And now you've got a grudge you've got to act upon. You've got to do something. And they're not even mad about it. So now you've got to make them mad <laughs> to justify why you don't like them. You think I'm making this up, folks. Come on. So you show grace. You work. You go to them. You go to them. You forgive them. You help them. You encourage them. You support them. And you love them. Yes. Well, pastor, that's not easy. Nobody said it was going to be easy. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Yeah. You're going to need the help of the Holy Ghost. You're going to need a lot of prayer. And there's going to be a lot of things that you determine to do that you're not going to feel like doing. But if you will do this, there will be a blessing that comes in your life. And you won't win with everyone because it takes two for relationships to work. But what you can do is you can break the curse of dysfunction within your sphere, your world. Your circle. There's nothing more wonderful than healing and restoration. There's nothing more beautiful than reconciliation. There's nothing more wonderful than somebody just being honest, owning up to their end of the bargain and responsibility to identify things. Take, take, take responsibility for your portion of the blame. That is not in any way excusing someone else. It's not saying that they weren't guilty, being willing to forgive, being willing to love. These are hard things to do. But we do it because God first loved me while we were yet sinners. And if it had not been for the grace of God, where would I be? What would have I done? What did God save me from? You say, well, I never did anything like that. Well, yeah, you never did anything like that. But maybe had God not gotten a hold of you, you would have done something like that. Because I've seen people who didn't realize how capable they were of things. You, people you'd never imagined things about. But when sin gets a hold of them, they're capable of anything. Without the grace of God, we're capable of anything. So what people really need, what they really need, is they need a transformation of the power of the Holy Ghost inside of their life. And you could be the biggest agent of that. I'll tell a testimony, and I won't tell the place, the time, or the event, so you don't have to say, but a story of a man who I've met many, I say many, not like just tons, but... I've met several murderers in my life who were in deep, dark places until God found them. Several. But there's a testimony of one man that said on the anniversary of the death of a specific individual, the mother showed up in prison and said, I forgive you. And from that point on, every year on the anniversary of her son's death, she went to the prison to that man and said, I forgive you. 
It messed with him so much that it drove him to a life of Christ. That is the power. That is the power of having your relationships right. You could revolutionize. You can revolutionize things through the grace of God. Somebody that has stolen from you, abused you, hurt you worse than anything else. If God can heal you, if God can give you strength, God can use what he gives to you to change somebody else. And there's no telling the end of that. Stand together with me tonight. Pastor Anthony Cox spoke a word to us at Revival 21 here the very first night. It wasn't even in his text. Before he took his text, he said, I feel that God has given us a word, and I felt like that was probably one of the clearest things. God spoke many things to us, but one of the clearest things God said all week to me specifically, and he said this, That God, when he delivered Israel, when he delivered the children of Israel out of bondage, he delivered them by families. He delivered them household by household. As the angel came over that place, it went from house to house to house to see where the blood was applied on the doorpost. And when God called them out to give them their territory, he separated them by families and said, you will be the ones that will possess the promise. He did it by families. I believe, and I know we live in a world in America, family, we, we have one of the most dysfunctional family statistics in all of the entire world in the Western Hemisphere. The irony of that is staggering. And right now in our culture, there is no slacking of attack upon the family. It has gone down to the core, to the fundamental identity of how God created you and me. It is an attack. It is an onslaught like never before. And I'm going to tell you, God, just as he delivered Israel by families, I believe also that God wants to send revival by families. And where that will begin is that will begin right here. It'll begin in relationships when we can yield everything we have to the Lord and say, God, I want you to redeem some things. Amen. As we close this out tonight, I think we need to take our relationships and give them to the Lord. Some of us may need to say, God, I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your grace. I need your faith in the days and weeks and years ahead. And I'm here to tell you, he will do that. Come on, can we do that right now? Can we surrender? Come on, hands lifted all across this place. Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray tonight by the help of the Holy Ghost. For every person under the sound of my voice, God whether they're joining us online or whether they're in-house. I pray, God, that our families, that our relationships, God, can be sanctified by the Spirit of God. Help us, God, to stand as you want us to stand. I pray right now, Lord, let the Word of God be in me. And, Lord, let it be manifest in my life, not just the Spirit of God speaking in other tongues, but, Lord, let it be manifest, God, in how I deal with people and how I handle money and material things in my life. And I pray this tonight for your glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody say thank you, Lord, tonight. Hallelujah. Can we thank the Lord tonight? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.
Praise the name of the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen, amen, amen. Thank you for being a Wednesday night Bible study. These are two big issues in your life. You will not, amen, ever get beyond dealing with these. So keep at it, amen. Why don't you